Well, for this conversation, I'm joined by the one and only Scott Clifton, aka Theoretical Bullshit. Scott and I sit down and together we look at the idea of social media, so platforms such as Twitter and the possible good and harm that they can cause by being engaged with and by the sort of echo chambers that can be created within those sort of, um, I guess, social structures within cyberspace. It's a really interesting topic and one that I've got a lot of thought behind and I'm looking forward to having further conversations in the future about. Um, we also take a look at fatalism, so specifically looking at Christians who realize they might no longer believe in God, uh, looking at this no belief system structure like Christianity has gone from under them they have a big void for a lot of people that looks like fatalism so I wanted to ask Scott his thoughts and advice on that sort of specific subject for those people who are facing that specific scenario we also look at things like sin and the fall um, and finally we land on morality and we take a unexpected look at abortion um, it's a really interesting conversation and I try and explore abortion with Scott uh, just trying to nail down a little bit more about the concept of personhood uh, and what it means for someone or something to have moral consideration um, and the term we use here is personhood for that anyway it's a really interesting conversation and I'd love to hear your reflections in the comments so make sure you let me know um, if you can hit like subscribe and hit the notification bell so you're reminded whenever we release a video here on When Belief Dies, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Scott Clifton. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. We aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why somebody holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold ourselves as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's great to have you with me as together we can explore this space. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by the one and only Scott Clifton. Scott, my friend, how are you doing? I'm great, Sam. It's really, really good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been it's been just over or just under a year, basically. We're we're about at that sort of year mark since we last spoke, and um, I know we've been having a bit of backwards and forwards trying to uh, find a date to make this work for a while. So it's it's nice to finally land one after a while. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, any um, missed connection was almost certainly my fault. So uh, I'm I'm happy to make up for it today. No man, it's all good. I know you've got you've got a very busy schedule, uh, having to act <laughs> pretty much every single day for the whole of your life. So um, yeah, I don't know how you do it to be honest with you. Forever and ever and ever. There's an afterlife comparison there somewhere. I don't somewhere. know exactly what it is. Deep down. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I was just, just going to touch on it really briefly, but how, how is work going for you? How's the family? Is everything going okay? Yeah, everything, everything's going really well. My, my, my son uh, just started first grade, uh, and, he, nice. and he, skipped, uh, he skipped kindergarten. So, do, I don't know if you guys have that, uh, uh, kindergarten. 
Um, we have um, we have like preschool and then reception and then year one, so it is different. But, oh, yeah. okay. So reception is our is kindergarten for us. Oh, uh, nice. And and he just plowed right through that. It was like an age thing, and he switched schools, and so we were like scared out of our minds that that you know he wasn't going to be prepared and we weren't going to be prepared, and everything's. It was it was much ado about nothing. Everything's been going great, and and it's a uh, it's really fun to watch him, you know, carry his little backpack to school and be autonomous and independent and have homework. Homework. <laughs> oh my God! I never knew homework was going to be such a thing. He's in first grade and he's got like two pages of math problems every night. It kills me. Anyway, it is so true. So I've I've got as you know I've got two little boys. Um, the youngest yeah. just started reception for us, um, and the oldest is gone nice. into like year three or something crazy. But they're now basically both at the same school, which is really helpful for us as a family. But it was funny. So, oh, so yeah. today was the first day they went. So they're both putting their little blue jumpers, and trotting <laughs> off down the street towards school. And I was like, oh, Aww. I've got the house to myself for like bit of time this is weird yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah. another thing is uh first grade goes uh they're they're there a lot longer than than they are in preschool aren't they yeah, yeah for us they are i have no idea <laughs> yeah no it's the same here it's nice i mean my wife's finally looking at kind of like jobs and sort of the next step as well for her so it's, it's actually like quite yeah. a big milestone to have them both going to school now it's like okay we can actually look at like you know part-time jobs and other things we can do and doing up the house and other things we've wanting to do for ages but just haven't had the time or the space so. yeah, yeah yeah god say i everything's everything you're saying i i relate to. <laughs> same here amen brother <laughs> Um, okay, so there are a few sort of things I wanted to chat with you today about. One of them is a kind of thought experiment, which we'll get to later, which I'm quite excited about. Um, but to start off with, um, I just wanted to kind of touch base with you. I'm aware that kind of um, you you have a YouTube channel, which is something you, you don't utilize very much at the moment, but also you have done quite heavily in the past. And these days you're, you're more or less on Twitter. That is your main presence, as far as I can tell. Um, there's no podcast, yeah. there's no kind of website, there's nothing like that. There is, there is Twitter, um, which is great. But I wanted to ask you a question, and that is around Twitter being a useful tool and also potentially quite a dangerous tool in the way that it causes echo chambers and for people to be um, isolated and hearing misinformation and believing that it's the correct information because they're caught in their little sphere um so i just yeah. wanted to get your sort of take on on i know you've, you've tweeted about it a few times and you've spoken about it but just get your take on on echo chambers and especially within the sort of uh, kind of potentially quite hostile environment that twitter can create uh, with its spaces and those sorts of things so yeah what, what are your thoughts on twitter and its echo chambers yeah that that's uh, maybe this is what you were alluding to but i think in the last month or so i had an interaction on twitter with somebody who was really not, I think something I did got retweeted or I commented under somebody else's, but it wasn't like my sphere. That's the thing about Twitter, right? You end up, you know, knowingly or not sort of curating your own community. And, and sometimes you, you do that uh, accidentally. And sometimes if you're not careful, you curate the wrong kind of community. Um, and, I, but anyway, I, I'm sort of, pr it, it, this experience made me very, very proud of, the, uh, the people that are my sort of circle, my Twitter circle, uh, which uh, I, I think have, you know, my followers and I have mutually trained one another to have our shit together. Uh, and, and so anyway, I, I sort of ventured outside of this circle and had a conversation with a young lady about abortion. Um, and, and she, it was, it's a long story, but she ended up, uh, uh, retweeting, taking that conversation. It was recorded and she took a snippet of it out of context and, and sort of uh, announced it in a way that, that put me in the worst light possible. And then 
I got flooded with all these comments. I mean, people saying that I should I should die and people saying that I'm an idiot and and I mean, really, really offensive. I'm retarded. And you know, like so uh, it just made me go, oh, my God, like it's been so long since I've had to deal with any of that shit. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm spoiled. I've spoiled myself by the people that I allow myself to associate with or not. But anyway, the lesson there is, uh, yeah, if you, I mean, if you're, well, in this case, her, for example, you're just, you're slumming it all the time and you, you have no idea, you're in the matrix, right? And, and you, you clearly you've chosen the blue pill and, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I, I understand how it would be scary to step outside of that because I think for some people, Twitter is in fact, a positive uh, self-image affirming feedback loop. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people use it for. Rah, rah, you know, the people who agree with us are the good guys and all those people over there, those dirt maggot people, those are the bad guys, they're the evil ones. Uh, and I, I'm, just, I'm just so grateful that like my best friends, the, clo the people to whom I'm closest on Twitter are the people I often disagree with the most. And I think that's some, I mean, this is all new. Social media is so, you know, it's, even though it's 20 years old, it's, it's still so relatively new. And my, our generation, we're going to have to teach our children how to, just like, you know, don't talk to strangers, don't accept candy, don't go get into a van. We're going to have to teach our children how to cultivate their own communities online, uh, how to treat social media, how to vet information uh, and, and news and uh, it's, it's frankly terrifying because <laughs> it's taken me this long to figure it out. So, yeah. I am, um, I, I'm, I'm very scared about it. I, I think I, I, I'm quite a, uh, addicted person, I guess you could say. So kind of one of the, one of the recent rabbit holes that I fell down was around the sort of, um, privacy uh, route. So you kind of have, mm -hmm. um, have this, this kind of concept of, um, you know, coming off social media as much as you can and uh, getting rid of WhatsApp and getting rid of like various Google email addresses or whatever, and just kind of beginning to kind of, um, I guess, recultivate your life around uh, more privacy preserving methods. So rather than using Gmail, switching to something like ProtonMail and, and trying to have um, different ways to, to yeah, to, just, just to manage your, uh, your assets, I guess, which is your information in this day and age. And I just, I was just amazed after like a month, I'd gone down all these little steps um, and just realized how much I'd been sucked into this community. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's so easy to begin to uh, look up to other people who have got a higher status in a community than you, or to begin to uh, desire to be at a certain rung within a community or trying to um, say something that A, might be true, but B, will also give you that sort of, um, I guess, gratification. Um, you can you kind of see it, you know, someone like um, like Sam Harris or, or Lex Friedman, they've got these really big podcasts, they're, they're very well known. They'll tweet something and they'll get so many thousands of likes or retweets or whatever like okay for them they might just be used to that that's their sort of you know bread and butter every single day that's what happens but there's also going to be some sort of level of um if they don't get that what's gone wrong or if they begin to oh, have yeah. pushback something's gone wrong and, and this desire to tweet something out and knowing that you're going to get loads of responses i i kind of feel that it must fuel that sort of desire to to post regardless and then almost ignore the people that say negative things and just push into the positive things um but something that i've, I've really admired about you i guess and, and you you had mentioned this before is is the the ability to, dis to disagree with people productively um it's almost like you know falling forwards it's, it's a similar sort of motif where um you don't necessarily have the same viewpoints you don't necessarily have the same belief systems they might even be you know religious or whatever and, and obviously you're not but you can still have meaningful conversations that exchange ideas effectively and actually at the end you can both 
be better because of it. Um, you might still completely disagree, but actually having meaningful disagreement, I think, goes a long way. But that, that on Twitter is very hard. Yeah, no, but I, I, I agree. It's, it's very hard. And it's not, it's not like, I don't get credit for that either. Like you need the right interlocutor. You know what I mean? I, it's funny. Um, somebody, somebody said something very nice about me on Twitter. Like, I think they retweeted something of mine. I can't remember what it was. And they said, Scott Clifton, always, always, you know, respectful and, and trying to have a productive conversation. And, <laughs> and then this one account like comments right under it and goes, he called me an asshole once, <laughs> and 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 it's true. I, I remember I, I did call that guy an asshole because he was being an asshole. So the the truth is, I'm not. You know, it's it's not that I'm. There are people I know that have the patience of a Zen monk, and no matter how rude everyone is to them, or 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 recalcitrant, or what bad faith they're acting. I mean, they're just so principled about being kind and inquisitive and oh why do you think why do you think that i'm a piece of shit why is that you know and i can't do that uh, i'm I, I still have a temper uh and and i i you know it's i i have a very low threshold of patience for people that i detect as acting in bad faith right away i mean you can you can almost tell when somebody just when somebody wants to figure something out together or is curious about what, why you think the way that they do or they genuinely think that there are issues with, you know, and they want to talk about it. Uh, and then there are people that are just out there to win something um, or to vilify the other side. And, and I think we all, well, not all of us, but I think people like you and me who value this stuff uh, can detect that pretty quickly. And then it's a test of uh, not getting dragged into it, right? And, and that could mean... Uh, just not engaging, or it could mean engaging, but but trying to be as patient and hospitable as as uh, as possible while you know facing uh, some bad faith. So I I'm not sure what the answer to that is because it seems to me that a lot of people who are acting in bad faith are saying a lot of the things that that most people agree with, and so. Maybe that's the only way you're going to address that claim. You know, is by engaging somebody who's who's not presenting it in good faith. And maybe that's the only way that conversation's going to get had. Uh, if, if, if there's, there's no, um, you know, sort of high quality interlocutor available to have that conversation with you. And sometimes there's a conversation that I just really want to have, you know, it's, it's, it's something I really want to talk about and think about because it's on my mind. And, and, you know, this guy's the only guy that's going to have that conversation with me. So it's a puzzle. Uh, and I don't, I don't know the answer to it. And, and clearly, uh, I, I come off as a hypocrite all the time because here I am talking about, you know, these values and, and not always living up to them. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily a big a big deal, though. I mean, cause I don't do that in any kind of rude regard. But I mean, um, I think often we want to talk and understand and work through values and not necessarily hit them. But it's more the 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 ideal that we're seeking, and it's the ability to critique that ideal and see what other people think about that ideal, and then we can adjust our lives accordingly. I think that's really for me one of the keys. Yeah, I think that's true. You're right. Um. 
something I wanted to bring up on this episode is something that I get asked at uh, quite a lot, basically, by, by Christians usually. And um, and you kind of touched on this recently in, in a conversation that I was watching um, where you kind of began to talk about the difference between determinism and, and, and fatalism. Um, and I just kind of oh, wanted yeah. to touch on it in a different sort of way because um, basically, let me just try and cut to the chase. Um, there are lots of Christians who get hold of me who kind of say, hey, look, Sam, I... I struggling with the belief in God and I can't stop believing God because without God, um, there's no purpose. There's no point. There's, there's nothing to this. There's almost this like uh, fatalistic viewpoint where the, the world and the universe just going the way it is and everything's meaningless and, and dull and, and completely colorless. Um, and I just wanted to get kind of, I guess from you, your sort of pastoral hat for, for just a moment before we dive into some more kind of um, philosophical stuff, which is around the sort of idea of Christians saying, hey, look, without my belief in God, I can't have uh, anything. And it's completely, you know, fatalistic, completely set. There's no way to change anything. And it doesn't make a difference what I do or say or think. I'm, I, it's meaningless. I'm aware that's different to, to determinism. So I kind of wanted to get your take on how you would respond to somebody who was tweeting or emailing or asking you, whatever it is, uh, saying those sorts of things. Wow. Uh, that's a good question. That's not something I've thought a lot about. And I think the reason I haven't thought a lot about it is because I'm a lifelong atheist, right? I mean, there, there's this really, really valuable human experience that I deeply envy, which is the process of having your whole fucking world turned upside down, right? Having, having, your core values and axioms and beliefs, presuppositions even, just ripped out from under you and having to build up again from nothing. And I think, um, I, I think I, I've said, I think I even mentioned this to, to Emerson uh, in, in the, the, um, the conversation that you're alluding to, that I, I wish I had, I wish I've experienced something like that. Um, because I think it's incredibly, character building and it and it creates a kind of wisdom that can't really be procured anywhere else and so i guess what i guess in response to the 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 kind of concern you're talking about i think there's two ways to deal with it one is intellectually uh okay can you is there a, a version of meaning is there a version of purpose? Is there a version of, of values and ethics uh, without uh, your, whatever your belief system was before, whatever your religion was before? The answer is, to that is obviously yes, right? That, that's, that's not the hard conversation. The hard conversation is the emotional one, right? And I guess my, my advice is, is crap advice, but it's lean into it. I mean, that it, that it, you are experiencing something so profound that so few people ever get to experience that despair, that, that, that sense of loss, that sense of aimlessness. It is fucking beautiful. And, and you should cherish it because you're not, there is going to come a time when you're going to be bored with it. You're not, there's a certain point where you're going to go, okay, now what? And then you're going to rebuild. But in the meantime, that, that purgatory, that abyss, I, 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 would, I would kill to experience that um, and to have had experienced that. Um, I know it's easy for me to say, but uh, that's how I tend to, to think about that. I, I, I envy uh, anyone going through that as sick Here's, as um... that sounds. 
Well, so on, on that note, here's a bit of a curveball then. So um, how would you, I think about this often, um, how would you feel if your child went through that? So say you raised your, your son as a Christian and then they went through this collapse of faith. Like how would you feel as, as a parent knowing that your child goes through something like that? Yeah, I mean, well, for, I, should, I should answer it the other way, right? I should think, okay, yeah. what if my son has this existential crisis and, and realizes that he deeply needs some kind of religion, you know, or some kind of uh, faith, you know, because that's, that's scarier, right? I mean, it's, or it's potentially scarier that he's, I'm, I'm happy to try to answer the question the way that you posed it, but it's harder for me to relate to, I don't know what it's like, I don't know what it's like to be, I mean, intellectually, if, if I'm a Christian and I believe that my son is losing his faith and that has implications for uh, his eternal afterlife, you know, like if, if that could, you know, potentially means an eternity of suffering for my son. And, and I'm very, very, very convicted in my beliefs about this, uh, then yeah, I guess I would just go into full on damage control panic mode. Um, but it's not, I don't think that's the spirit of your question. Um, I think if, if, if my son were going through something where he was transitioning away from my worldview, uh, and in, in a way that was causing him crisis, uh, I don't know what I would do. I think I would just try to be interested. Mm. I think I would just try to be as interested in his thoughts and his journey and his suffering. And I would also encourage him to be interested in it as well. Um, uh, which I, I guess is, is similar to the answer that I gave before. You know, that's, that's what I was trying to allude to. It's that sort of like, would you be encouraging him to, to push into and embrace that, um, losslessness or that doubt or that, um, I guess void that kind of would have come because like whatever that sort of foundational principle was that they had from childhood is disappearing and something else will eventually take its place. You mentioned, and you can figure that out, build from the rubble later, but it's that, right. it's that stop gap of loss to rebuilding. That's the area that I think a lot of people have, um, have a lot of, I guess, I guess when you're facing the void from a, from a system of, um, whatever that is, and you're looking, you're resing that you might be crumbling away from your belief system. That's scary, right? People are like, I don't really want to do that. So if I could just stay where I am, it's quite comfortable. But actually those who go through that journey often come out, uh, much more, um, I guess rounded and much more open to the reality that they, they might still be wrong about stuff. Um, because they had an entire belief system that they were wrong about before, or they now believe they're wrong about before. And they might have picked up a new belief system in whatever way it is where they've rebuilt, but actually go, I'm holding it with more, I guess, loose fingers because I don't want Tentativeness. Wanna... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to just yeah. jump into something, do you? And, uh, and realize it once again, you picked the <laughs> wrong thing. Um, yeah. That's it. Yeah. I've never really thought about that, but that, that must be, there's a sort of intellectual humility that has to come along with that because you know what the psychological state of certainty feels like right i mean you know what it's like to be so sure of something uh that you just can't even conceive of being wrong about it and then to feel like you were wrong about it right and so you, there's this this dichotomy of of you, you can hold these these two almost incompatible thoughts in your head at the same time uh, and again that's something that i'm uh a, a bit uh, envious because <laughs> I've, I mean, I, I've had obviously my worldview turned upside down, but in smaller ways than something like 
uh, theism versus naturalism, right? That's like, that's a really, that's a big one. Yeah, it is. But I think you're somebody who can, you can put yourself in, in someone's shoes and, okay, you've not gone through it yourself, but you can definitely appreciate um, the questions and the thoughts and the, uh, and, and the issues that they have um, coming out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can try. So, yeah, yeah. That's all we can do, I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things I wanted to chat with you about was a sort of thought experiment that I've um, been having for a little while, which is kind of, I think for me, one of the things that makes Christianity make no sense, and I wanted to kind of propose it to you and get your take on it, and you can knock it down or pull holes in it, or maybe do some sort of like devil's advocacy thing where you pretend you're the Christian and try and figure out where I'm going wrong or push back or whatever. But anyway, I just kind of lay out this thought experiment, and then we can um, we can go where we can go where we go. Um, yeah, so cool. I call it basically um, who who cut the string um, is is simply the name of the thought experiment, and essentially what I try and explain to people is. Um, to start off with and frame it, there there is this concept in Christianity of sin. So this this idea that there is a, a fallen humanity that at some point made a decision to turn away from God, and we have this thing called sin, right? And then uh, the way that we're kind of taught throughout Scripture and within kind of uh, churches and Sunday schools, etc., is that there is this person Jesus who came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, was accepted as the atonement for this sin, and that means that if people believe in the said person Jesus, uh, they can essentially uh, re re come back to god and, and go around that sort of sin gap and, and and be kind of held together and this thought experiment basically says if you were to take a piece of string to yourself today and you were to pull it all the way to the beginning of the universe um if the christian message is true at some points along that string there has been a cut uh, at some point humanity made a decision to turn away from god um, and to uh, allow that string to be cut now we should be able to find due to time where that cut took place essentially mm. that there should be a time when humanity was able to make the decision that we no longer want anything to do with god um and the sort of kind of thought experiment is there doesn't seem to be due to our history and due to evolution a set time when we as a species were able to a acknowledge that there was a god who told us the perfect moral law to follow B, decides to turn around and go, no, I want nothing to do with that. And then C, it meant that sin came into the world and actually began to be that divide between humanity and God. Um, so the thought experiment basically is kind of around challenging to Christians, especially where did the cut take place? What is it that happened? When did it happen? Who did it happen to? Give us some details. Don't just say Adam and Eve. But that's a general thought experiment. I kind of wonder, like, it's, it's obviously aimed at Christians, um, Scott, but what are your thoughts to that and any kind of challenges or reflections? I think, I mean, I think you're touching on perhaps my biggest criticism of Christianity as a worldview is the, the ethics of its soteriology or soteriology is plural. Uh, but I don't think, I really don't think any version of it makes moral sense to me. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of biblical literalist answer to your question is Adam and Eve, right? Uh, and and the, the question is, when was the string cut? Like fucking right away. <laughs> you, know? you had one job. You had one job. Don't eat that fruit. And, and they did it anyway. Of course, of course, in that allegory, the, uh, the fruit is what gives them the knowledge that it was wrong in the first place, which seems a bit paradoxical. But, um, but even if you... You know, even if you imagine that that is is uh, allegorical and that at some point we're talking about, you know, uh, the, the fall, right? The, the fall, the fall of man. 
Yeah, man, human beings have existed for, I don't know, something like 150, 200,000 years, something like that. So somewhere along the line. I I don't know the uh, old earth uh, uh, apologetic response to that question of like where, when the fall actually happened. Was it one individual? Was it an entire society of individuals? Did it just happen slowly over time? Well, no, it couldn't have happened slowly over time because one sin is what is enough to go to hell, right? Or, or if you believe, if you're an annihilationist, it's enough to be annihilated and so on. So it's, an, it's enough to not, to, to, it's enough to be separate from God. Uh, and th- that just doesn't appear to make any sense to me uh, from the perspective of a being who created us because he wants a relationship with us and because he loves us. Even if you take, whether or not Adam and Eve are literal, uh, the idea is that they had a fighting chance of never sinning, right? That was the idea. Like they, they could have lived their entire lives without sinning. And if they had done so, Jesus never enters the picture, right? Because there is no pen, the, the penalty for sin is death and Jesus is the savior from that penalty. Now, the, the ethics of substitutionary atonement aside, that's a whole other issue. Um, I have a friend who's a Christian who has uh, speculated, well, what if, you know, what, what, if, what if God created other planets, right, besides our own? Uh, and, and on those planets, there was no original sin. And so those civilizations just never ended up sinning. Nobody ever ended up sinning. And so there was no need for a savior and everybody went to heaven and everything was hunky-dory. Uh, I just don't understand why, if Adam and Eve had the chance to live an entire life without sinning and therefore separating themselves from God, why don't you and I? Why, why is it the case that each new human being that is created or born has the exact same chance that Adam and Eve did to live a life without being separate from God? And the second question is, why on earth should making a mistake separate you eternally from your creator who loves you. Well, it's because God is so perfect and so any crime against God is infinite in nature because God is infinite in nature. That is the worst non sequitur I think I've heard in, in, in defense of Christianity. So um, there's a lot of different angles to this and I'm already, t- I'm already talking too much about it, but yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, something smells fishy here uh, and, and it all seems very very ad hoc uh, and and I've had many 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 conversations about um, how I, I don't think the, the entire story uh, really tracks not not only doesn't track with uh, it doesn't track internally um, but it also doesn't track externally the more we learn about you know human psychology and history and so forth so I don't know if I'm answering your question. I think I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> but that's all good. There you have it. <laughs> I think um, I mean just we'll just touch on it a little bit more and then we can move on. But I think um, yeah, I, I dig it. Yeah, um, for me it's this sin element. I guess like if you if you can knock the the sort of I guess if it, if it's a house of cards, if you can knock the sort of sin would be one of the, obviously one of the sort of cornerstones of said house of cards. If you can knock that away, the whole structure collapses. Like there is. It just like it just doesn't make sense anymore. Like the whole you know, death, resurrection of Christ, Christianity, the sort of teachings, it all falls apart. And I just can't. 
I can't for the life. A, I don't think there was a sort of you know just two human beings. Obviously, kind of I believe in evolution. I believe that there were other hominin species before us, and we have slowly evolved over time. And there was a cognitive revolution uh, in the Homo sapiens line, and then we we moved forwards and moved on. And some people have pointed to the cognitive res- uh, cognitive revolution as a time when we fell away from God. But again, you would have had to have known what you were rejecting for it to be able to be put against you like you don't you don't send someone to prison unless you can say you know don't murder they murder then they can go to prison right that's that that's they've done something that they knew they shouldn't have done and then they can go to prison you don't right. just go oh now you've done this thing oh you, you didn't know before but now you do I'm, I'm sorry but you can no longer be in touch with god that's gone and you've got to just pretend like he's real to believe in him like there just there isn't there isn't a point along the spectrum where we have known with for certainty that God is real and we have decided to reject him. And and you're absolutely right. It's this idea that kind of if that didn't happen and God was real, still, God was still real, like a Christian God this is at the moment, um, why can't we all go through the situation where we all are literally shown, here he is, do you want to believe him or not? And then we can actually have our own decisions to make and then we can actually agree we're, we're going to or we're not going to on an individual basis. And it's, again, it should be acceptable for people to either agree to follow God or not. I know there are some atheists who turn around and say, like, even if, even if he, like Christopher Hitchens would be a prime example, like even if the Christian God was proven to be real, he'd never worship him. He would just never do it, um, which is fascinating. So I kind of, I kind of, yeah, if, for me, the whole spectrum doesn't make sense. Like there's no, there's no clear defining marker where, where, the fall took place for sin to enter for Christianity to need to be here, which then just shines a whole light on the sort of, I guess uh, this is the outworking of this and I'll stop talking now. Um, But basically um, (laughs) there is obviously a lot of the sort of moral sway that Christianity has had over the West, especially due to the belief of, you know, the, the Bible being a literal book about what happened rather than the sort of Jewish version, which was uh, often back in the day, much more a, um, an interpretation of trying to understand who God is. We then found that we kind of slowly began to treat it as a literal event that took place, like all of it, mm-hmm. and then took it as a literal fact that, you know, we had to believe these, like Moses existed, et cetera, et cetera. And we then formulated our rules and our laws and our way of being and our conversations around uh, this and formulated this sort of Western Christian moral structure which we're slowly trying to unpick and this is why philosophy is so interesting because we're slowly trying to understand right and wrong up and down good and bad through unpicking the christian motif and i just find it fascinating yeah there i mean there's really there's nothing more infuriating to me than the idiom that uh the gates of hell are locked from the inside uh, and I think that speaks to this. Okay, well, well, why, why? I mean, this is this is all. I mean, it, it feeds into a lot of different theological issues. But for me, uh, it, it can tend to come back to the problem of non-belief uh, or divine hiddenness, if you want to call it that. Uh, you, you know, what here you have a being that created us, has a sort of filial relationship with us, like a parent to a child, wants a relationship with us, want, wants us to know that he exists. And yet, for some reason, chooses not to make his existence clear to us. And I'm not just talking about evidence. I think you can you can sort of skip that and go right to like there, there's no I don't need there's not an argument I need for my mom's existence, right? There's not I don't I don't examine the data and form a hypothesis and oh it's more probable that my mom exists than doesn't. And yet. I am perfectly free to have a relationship with my mother or not. And there have been times in my life where I have not had a, a relationship with my mother, right? So, so th- there's nothing about God, God's existence being perfectly obvious to everyone that forfeits 
the kind of autonomy that Christianity says is so important, right? Uh, so uh, again, that seems to be like a sort of ad hoc excuse, and and sin seems to be the driving force of that excuse. Uh, the sin and the choice not to sin, the, chin, the, the choice to accept a savior for the punishment of that sin. Um, I don't, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, obviously, obviously I, I agree that uh, it's, it's convoluted and, um, and, and doesn't, doesn't pass the smell test ethically. I think I had more to say about that, but I'm, maybe I'll think of it again. Anyway. Yeah. All good. Um, so I guess kind of as we, as a kind of, I guess I, I would call the UK, probably most of Europe now and, and America um, as, as a post-Christian sort of space, really, I think we are still living in the rubble of a Christian empire and beginning to walk away from that rubble and actually begin to try and understand, um, you know, things like, you know, big topics like abortion in light of there being no God or whatever it is. We're, we're all as, as nations trying to unpick some extremely big moral subjects. Um, so I guess kind of, it, it'd be interesting to kind of get your view on this, Scott. Like, do you, do you think that we're going to, um, make progress with our moral unpicking if that's the right word or, or do you think we're going to be we're going to be struggling and this kind of feeds into a few of the things we've said so far so you have the sort of kind of echo chambers it doesn't necessarily have to be twitter but it has just societal echo chambers they, they exist we have this sort of post-christian confused state where a lot of people think in things like fatalism or thinking things like uh, purposelessness and then we have sort of like uh, our, our moral decisions and our moral responsibility still being something we need to adhere to right we need to decide who goes to prison and who's allowed to be in society we need to decide right and wrong like these are things that we as a society need to get around and actually there seems to be more and more division so i guess it's both a sort of social question but also um i'm happy to start going down some of the philosophical roots around morality but it'd be interesting to kind of get your take on the sort of post-christian societal moral outworkings yeah i you know there's uh, so uh, re religion has really been the only game in town uh, for as long as you know history allows. Really, I, you know, I, I'm I'm not so sure. But uh, coming out, I, I guess I want to say that uh, there's more than one way to to get it wrong morally and ethically uh, and culturally. Uh, and the kinds of sort of monotheistic religions that we have on the table, the, the big three, for example, um, that's, just, that's just one way of, of getting it wrong. I, I'm, for, I'm, I'm, I should be clear, I'm not, I'm not a moral relativist, I'm not a nihilist, I mean, I think that there are right and wrong answers to ethical questions, and I'm you know, happy to unpack that, and I think that it, it, everybody can, I think a, sec a totally secular conversation about right and wrong and and values and the the kind of society we want to live in and the and the kinds of the the sort of varieties of well-being we want to aspire to all of those conversations can be had uh and i think they are being had but i also think that we i mean we're human beings we we overcorrect right it's it's kind of like what we do we we go too far in this direction and then we go oh, no, 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 maybe not maybe not maybe not you know and then we go too far in the other direction and i see a little bit of that now uh uh, and so I, yeah, I don't, I don't believe religion poisons everything. I think, um, as, as Hitchens would have said, I think dogmatism poisons everything. Um, and there's no shortage of totally secular dogmatism. The, the, 
what that dogmatism and religion have in common uh, is the tendency, which is a very human thing, to say that the people who disagree with us must be bad. Um, they must be, they, they, it's not just that they have, that they're operating on different assumptions than we are. It's not just that they, they see it differently than we do. It's they, they, they are bad uh, and they want bad things. Uh, and that's like so few people. Yes, there are psychopaths. Yes, there are people, there are just bad people. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to sound too much like Sam Harris here, but he's right when he says, Bad ideas are the problem. Uh, bad ideologies are the problem. And um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the future is going to look like. Uh, I don't know. And I don't know. Perhaps you know, just as just as you know, technological advancement is sort of like this uh, um, exponential curve. Uh, perhaps the pendulum swing is going to be like that too, where. You know, it took a long time to swing this way. And then as it swings back the other way, it'll take less time. And then as it swings back the other way, it'll take less time. And then maybe eventually we end up in the, the sweet spot, the Goldilocks spot, uh, ethically. I don't, I don't know. We also have a lot of confounding variables on the table. Artificial general intelligence, that's going to really fuck with us. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know how that's going to be plugged into our ethical considerations or our cultural or political considerations. So uh, if, if it's worry you're expressing about the future, I, I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> panic. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So let's all just panic. That's, that's let's just my... panic. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. Um, okay, there, I mean, there, there, there are two ways to take the conversation from here, I guess. The sort of first one be looking at kind of... Um, if if we are swinging in the opposite direction, if that pendulum is switched from a sort of religious philosophical uh, morality driven from religion framework and is swinging the other way, are we looking at sort of kind of um, extremism on the right and the left as the pendulum is swinging too far? And we're going to come back and correct. That's one conversation we can have. The other conversation will be around kind of um, I guess morality as as you see it as well. It's quite an interesting one. I know you've you've mentioned Sam Harris a few times in a few different podcasts, and um, he's quite um, obviously a big fan of the sort of well being kind of hypothesis. I guess you could say where kind of um, morality lands on well-being and we can maximize well-being uh, to the best of our ability that is the the most 
moral sort of and salient thing we can do and he also views it as kind of there are many different mountains that you could land on with this so there are there are there are good ways and there are better ways of doing it and there are valleys in between and we can kind of jump between different ones potentially but kind of there are different peaks we could aim for so um i don't know i don't know which way you want to take the conversation scott would you like to look at morality would you like to look at society oh i'd well i mean i'm always i'd rather talk about you know normative ethics and meta ethics and shit like that just because i'm more comfortable talking about that but uh but i'm yeah i just it's just i mean i'm not uh sociology is something that i'm I'm totally not uh, really educated enough to be talking about. I mean, there are there are facts about politics, and there are facts about that, that can be learned about society and how people behave, and how people in groups behave, and how people in big groups behave differently than people in small groups, and and trends and things like that. I mean, there's actually data to be known here that I don't know, <laughs> empirical data. So uh, I, I'm. Uh, I would just, you know, I, I would risk looking like an asshole uh, talking about something that, that I don't uh, totally understand. Uh, really, I'm just, when I, when I say things like what I just said, I'm guessing. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just looking at the world and getting a vibe, which is like the least possible scientific way to think about these questions. But, um, but when it comes to, you know, ethics and theory and morality and theory and what we want it to be and what it, you know, what it could look like and what's defensible and um, what what we can all agree on, I, I um, I'm totally happy to talk about that without without feeling like I'm, uh, you know, my imposter syndrome is acting up. It'll still be yeah. acting up a little bit, but, <laughs> but you know. Uh, no, I think let's 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 do it. I mean, I'm not I'm I'm not an expert in this area. I'm still very new. I'm I'm much more sort of uh, biblical studies, theology. That that's my bag, right? So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I really enjoyed this space because I think. For me, and I'll kind of just sketch out a little bit about my thinking around morality, and then we can dive into some kind of more nuance. So I think for me, the way that I view morality post-Christianity is much more around, it is around well-being and and flourishing, not just human flourishing, but but life flourishing. So that's in regards to the ecosystem, yeah. the climate, uh, animals, um, humanity, and making sure that there is a, a balance between those things that we very often neglect at our own peril, essentially. Um, so for me, kind of like a, a really interesting one to dive into around this is um, like the, the sort of statement, you know, kind of like veganism is correct because it uh, causes uh, less suffering. If, if if you are a vegan, essentially, you're, you're potentially uh, causing less suffering. Anyway, there are loads of arguments against that. But I kind of guess for, for me, that's a really interesting one to explore because um, it, it looks at the idea of suffering and says, how can we minimize this to the best of our ability? And then that really does open up the framework for flourishing across animal life, plant life and, and human life as well. Um, and that's just me kind of just touching very lightly on the subject of morality yeah. post-Christianity, but kind of what, what are your views of morality, Scott, and kind of where do you sketch yourself in this space? Yeah, the, I, I think it's great that you're bringing up veganism. I think, uh, uh, I should say I'm, I'm not, a vegan, and I view that as a, a profound moral failure on my part, right? It's like I know I ought to be a vegan, and I, I don't have the, uh, the, the fortitude or the willpower to do it consistently, right? So, that's the, so to be clear, um, I think it, veganism is, is ethically superior to uh, eating meat or using animal products in general, with, with, with some obvious exceptions. But I think the... Um, I think taking something like veganism and uh, I guess I should say, I think a great test of somebody's moral 
intuitions and presuppositions is to ask them how they think about the relationship between veganism on the one hand and abortion on the other, right? So, so I mean, th these two, it's amazing how uh, interconnected these two subjects actually are, right? It's about, you know, who, to whom do we owe moral consideration and to whom do we not? Uh, who is a part, who or what is a part of the moral community? Who or what is a moral patient? Not just a moral agent, but a moral patient. And who is not? Uh, and if you ask somebody on the pro-life side, they're going to say, this is about human rights. I mean, you know, the reason we had the Holocaust was because, you know, somebody like Hitler looked at the Jews and said, they don't count, right? They're outside the circle. They're, they don't deserve rights because of who they are, you know? And, and people are doing that exact, they're doing the exact same thing now with a boy. They look at a fetus and they go, that doesn't count, right? Because of whatever their screwed up reasons are, but that, that, you know, how, how can they not see this holocaust of babies happening every single year, you know, just because those babies are in, how can they not see what they're doing, you know? And then of course a vegan comes along and says, well, but wait a minute, a, a, a six-week-old fetus can't even suffer. I mean, there's nothing that it's like to be a six-week-old fetus, right? I mean, the, what it's like to be a six-week-old fetus is what it's like to be a Venus flytrap or a cactus. There is, no, there is no experience one way or another to be had. How can you call that a person? How can you consider something a part of the moral community? How can you wrong something that it's nothing like to be. On the other hand, you guys are so you know pro-life, but clearly not pro-cow life, clearly not pro-pig life, you know, and so if you want to do the Hitler comparison, what, uh, what's so special about human beings? What is it? It's, is it our intelligence? Is it our rationality? Is it our capacity for, for suffering? Well, none of those things apply to a fetus, right? Well, no, but, but it's, 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 it's just the category of human, says the pro-lifer. It's, it's, it's humans as a special category of being. It's their potential for all these things that make them so important, right? Um, okay, uh, but now you're, you're deciding who's in and out of the moral circle based on taxonomy, based on their DNA. Who did that? Who do we know of in history that did that? The Nazis, right? So both sides can play this game, right? You know, you're, you're special because of your biology. And the other side is going, no, it's not about biology. It's about the capacity for experience and the kinds of experiences. Do we want to minimize suffering or not? Or is all we care about the right kind of being, right? The right kind of creature. Uh, and I think... I mean, I, the, the most respect I have is for somebody who is both pro-life and vegan. I think that's an awesome, awesome way to, to think about the world. Even, even if I still disagree with the pro-life side because uh, I, I, don't think, um, I don't think we can owe anything to a fetus. And there's re and reasons for that, and I'm happy to talk about why you know, I think that. But, um, uh, but at, least it's, it's, at least it's considerate and it's thoughtful, and I, I, I think that's incredibly rare it's really interesting i kind of guess then <clears throat> it, it'd be interesting to kind of hear why you think 
com- comparing veganism and um, abortion um, have led you to, I guess, the position that you find yourself in? So kind of what is it? You kind of already mentioned that you, you think that veganism is, is a higher moral standard than potentially kind of, you know, consuming animal products. And we can go into that as well, but also kind of looking at the pro-life side. So kind of what are the sort of uh, reasons that you kind of come to this position? And are there sort of... Um, is is it just philosophical or are there kind of more practical everyday life so, social reasons like what is it for you that kind of led you to begin to yeah i guess feel like that uh you're you're speaking specifically on the on the sort of a, a abort, pro-life pro-choice abortion side of things yeah i mean if um, you, you kind of raise it so i'm really happy to go into it i mean i, I i'm yeah. not again an expert but i'm happy to have that conversation yeah okay so um well as i said the the uh the, the, the moral fulcrum for me is um, what, what I would just slap the label of personhood on. I think, you know, there's a lot of really misleading questions in this debate. Like, when does life begin? Well, okay, life begins at conception. All right, a cow's life also begins at conception, but that doesn't mean that you think you have moral obligations to a cow. So clearly, life is a total red herring. It's not about being alive. Trees are alive. You have no problem killing a tree, right? It's not so stop with the life part. It's not about life. What is it then? What, what is it actually? Um, uh, okay, well, it's a human being, right? Okay, well, it's okay. It's a human being, but what is it? It's, there are lots of things that are human, but that are not human beings, right? Um, there's, I have skin cells on my face right now that I would be destroying, that I would be killing, that are human skin cells. But are they human beings? No, they're not human beings. They're just human biologically. So even just being human is not the, the, the issue here. When most people say human being, I think they mean human person. Uh, and I think person is is the concept that we want to sort of corral around in order to have this conversation and ask the question, what, what, what makes something a person? Uh, and I think if, if something is a person, then it's part of our moral community, right? That, then it is owed our moral consideration. I think, I think my cat has, is a person. It has personhood. It, it has a personality. It is a, there's, I don't see any morally relevant difference between my cat uh, and, you know, my, my six month old son, when he, you know, the cat is, even when my son was a newborn, the cat's more intelligent. The cat can suffer more. What is, what's so special about, uh, um, what's so special about human beings in that case that we would afford human beings more moral consideration than a cat? Well, there are answers to that, right? I mean, maybe we want to live in a world where, maybe we don't want to live in a world where we care more about other species than we do our own species, right? Maybe each species, we, you know, the, the world would actually be worse if humans were so low on our priority list that we, you know, we, saving the whales took more precedence for us than saving human beings or something like that, right? Maybe there are, uh, um, maybe there are reasons that we should value our, like maybe there's a reason why I should value my own son more than somebody else's son, even though we consider them both of equal value. Maybe I have an obligation to care more about my in-group than the out-group. I don't know. You can answer all of those questions, but for me at the bottom of things is the fact that at least early on in gestation, something like a fetus, uh, and that we can quibble about, you know, when 
the conscious perception of pain, conscious experience sort of comes online, right? Is it as early as 12 weeks? That seems very, very conservative. Is it as late as 28 weeks? Uh, that seems a little sloppy. Um, but before there's anything, before a fetus has any conscious perception of anything, before there's anything, any subjective experience to be had, I don't think it makes sense to talk about wronging something that there's nothing that it's like to be. Um, and for me, that's, that's where it's at. Now, there are objections to this, right? Uh, somebody might come along and say, oh, okay, well, so then what, so what's stopping anyone from raping somebody in a coma? Right? Or if, somebody, if somebody's sleeping, right? why don't we just kill them because they're sleeping? They're not conscious when they're sleeping, so according to you, they can't be wronged. Right? And I have, there are obvious answers to those questions. Clearly, once you've been conscious, then there's a, there's a continuity of experience before and after you're unconscious. Right? We also imagine living in a world where we all knew that it was morally permissible the moment we fell asleep for somebody to come and har harvest our organs, right? That would cause suffering in the world unnecessarily before I'm ever even unconscious. And so there is this, there are, there are ethical reasons, there are moral contractarian reasons for respecting the wishes of people that are sort of online, so to speak, even if they're not experiencing those wishes at this exact moment. Um, that's why you don't kill somebody in a coma just because they're unconscious, right? That's why you don't rape somebody when they're sleeping just because they're unconscious. That's why you don't pee in somebody's shower uh, when you're visiting their house because you know that they wouldn't like it even if they never find out about it. Um, so we wanna be, we wanna treat people the way that we would hope to be treated. This is why we have wills. This is why we have requests about what happens to our bodies after death. Is somebody who's brain dead permanently a person? Do we consider them a person? Do, 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 are, do, are they owed moral consideration? Well, in some ways, yes, they are if they've made certain requests, but do they have a right to life? Is somebody who's completely brain dead with no chance of recovery, do they have a human being, right? Do they have a right to life? I think we all recognize that they don't. And it's because they're never going to wake up again. Um, and so, anyway, so I, I all this stuff is really interesting to me, and I think there's a, there's a really important dialectic to be had about it, but we have to, the biggest problem with the pro-life, pro-choice debate is that they're, they're talking past each other. My body, my choice to somebody who believes that a fetus is no different from a six-year-old little girl kind of sounds like my body, therefore my choice to murder anyone I want, right? They're not going to hear... <laughs> bodily autonomy arguments the way that you and I might because they're operating on totally different moral presuppositions than, than we are. Actually, I don't, I don't know where you stand on abortion, but than I am in this case. Uh, so, yeah. So, okay, so let's kind of find find that base level then. So you mentioned personhood quite a few times. For, for you then, Scott, you're saying that personhood is the place we need to define for us to then be able to begin to explore things like, you know, is, as you mentioned, like, is, is a cat a person, is somebody who's in a coma a person, is somebody who's brain dead a person? Like once we understand what personhood is, we could then begin to define uh, the sort of kind of more, um, I guess, strenuous circumstances around what personhood could be, uh, I guess, cast against. So um, first question then, I guess, kind of, is, is it personhood? Is that the base layer for, for this conversation? Well, I, to be clear, I, I just propose in these kinds of conversations that we use the word person 
as a as the least confusing placeholder for what we mean when we're talking about someone who is owed moral consideration. You don't have to use the word person. I mean, uh, that if you find that word confusing, I'm just trying to avoid uh, words like human being, which is just is just going to get you into trouble, or um, alive, which is totally misleading, right? So I, I'm I'm proposing the word person. Um, to designate the kind of thing that we owe moral consideration to, the kind of thing that is part of our moral community and can be a moral patient, uh, if that if that makes any sense. Do, I'm not married to the word personhood. It's just... Uh, no, no, it, that yeah. makes sense. So owe, owe moral consideration. That's interesting. Okay, so um, very briefly, let's talk about a fetus and then let's talk about a coma patient because I think that's quite interesting. So... I, are you saying that we owe moral consideration to a fetus if they can't feel? And if so, why? And if not, why? Uh, no, like, so like a pre-conscious fetus, let's say six weeks old. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody thinks that a six week old fetus uh, has yeah. a, a first person experience, right? There's nothing yeah. that it's like to be a six week old fetus. You get to 12 weeks, 20 weeks, and then you can start having that debate about the, the actual empirical debate. Um, but uh, no, I mean, if we, if, uh, if, if we don't feel that we owe uh, a cactus uh, any kind of, if, if we don't feel that we can wrong a cactus, now maybe it's wrong to destroy a cactus, but not because it's the cactus you're wronging, right? If I go to Joshua Tree National State Park and I chop down a cactus, uh, I've done something wrong, but it's, but I haven't done something wrong to the cactus. I haven't caused the cactus any kind of unnecessary suffering. I haven't wronged the cactus. What I've what I've wronged is all the other people that want to come to Joshua Tree and enjoy the beauty of the park, right? So I'm not saying that you can't wrong. Or for example, here's another example. Um, why is it wrong to uh, uh, kick a woman who's only six weeks into gestation in the stomach and cause her to miscarry? Right? The fetus isn't going to feel anything. So what's possibly wrong with that? The fetus doesn't even know it exists. The fetus has, there's nothing that it's like to be that fetus. So why can't I kick a woman in the stomach and cause her to miscarry? Well, because the fetus is valuable to the woman, right? So again, I'm not saying that you can't, that it's not, it's never wrong to kill something that has no conscious experience. But uh, in most cases, especially if it's the woman, for example, who is deciding uh, to terminate her pregnancy, it's not the fetus that you're wronging, um, and th and that's what we care about. So, do we owe? Do, do, are six week old human fetuses part of our moral community? Do do we need to, you know, allocate our sort of uh, mental and moral and philosophical resources to protecting them at the expense of? I mean, let's be clear. A lot of people kind of like to sweep under the rug the, the cost of never having abortions, right? Um, for example, in the United States, uh, there's, there's some percentage of, of parents who are on waiting lists to adopt a child, right? Uh, to adopt an unwanted baby, right? Um, now, I can't remember how many millions of abortions take place in the United States every year, but let's say that none of them were allowed to happen ever. Well, now the surplus of orphaned children, right? Now, the surplus of children who aren't wanted 
is you know ten times, twenty times as many people that are actually willing to adopt, and so now you've got now you now you've got an orphan problem, right? So yes, there are practical uh, there are practical reasons too. What happens when you force somebody to raise a child that they know they don't have the mental, emotional, financial bandwidth to actually care for and raise and love and instruct and protect, right? Well. We kind of know what happens, right? I think that there was a there was a moment in history when abortion was was first criminalized. Twenty years later, you had a crime wave, and then when abortion was legalized again, twenty years later, sure enough, you had a decrease in crime. Um, the, of, of course, children who are forced to be born, forced into the world, uh, uh, unloved, uncared for, you know, harm begets harm, and and we don't want to live in that world either. So what? So. Um, Anyway, all I'm saying is that there are real-world practical costs to not having abortions uh, that I think far outweigh the non-cost of killing something that that, uh, that that there's nothing that it's like to be in the first place, or so I argue. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's. If, if you're happy to carry on going down this road, sure, I'd like yeah. to. I'd like to come keep coming back to trying to nail down, I guess, personhood. Oh, so. Sure. Sorry, I'm just of, going off on all these tangents, no, and you're fine. like, dude, it's dude, fine. come back, come back, come back to the beginning. Um, no. So, some, someone or something we owe moral consideration to, i.e., we're using the term personhood for this conversation. Um, so, you're mentioning that uh, nobody thinks that a six-week-old fetus has a first-person experience that it's consciously aware of. Um, so I, I guess I guess it's I'm not, I'm not I'm not saying they do, but I guess it's how you define consciousness. Um, that that's going to be kind of where one of these cruxes come from. Um, I know somebody kind of like somebody like Annika Harris in her book um, Conscious or Consciousness um, sketches out quite interestingly um, a thought experiment, which is that kind of there, there seem to be some certain trees within North America who are able to kind of use the mycelium network under their roots to uh, migrate various minerals and nutritions to saplings they know are their own and to ignore and almost send off warning signals for other trees growing nearby and going, this isn't happening. And and you could argue to a certain extent that that is a form of consciousness. Um, once again, kind of like octopus have um, obviously evolved since I think we diver we diverged when we were sponges. Um, they have a very different way of, uh, of and they have grown their consciousness in a very different way than, than, than us humans have as well. So I'm yeah. not saying that a fetus has a first person experience like we are having right now. They have this qualia that we're having, but it could be that they are a, obviously we believe that they are going to one day be able to have qualia, meaningful qualitative experiences, but also, so, so there's that there's the, they could have that. So could personhood not also include the, the potential of qualia but also kind of how do we know that there isn't some sort of them that could very well be some sort of 
consciously experienced that a six week old fetus having i it could not be the first person experience but i guess again yeah. this comes down to consciousness it depends how you define it because if you believe something like panpsychism yeah. you could begin to argue that although the fetus itself might not be experiencing life like we are like with the letter i it could be experiencing life in a very different way because of how consciousness arises within human property um i don't yeah. know so i kind of i guess just to come back to that because then i'd also like to yeah, yeah, yeah. Mirror, it, mirror it against end of life brain dead like is it, why does why does personhood end at that point as well with you so let, let's go back to that and then we can move on to the sort of end of life side totally uh so okay so first of all let, let's let's make a distinction between um consciousness as a a sort of subjective first person experience you know the lights are on there's something that it's like to be something and uh either information processing or uh response to stimuli right a computer i mean the computer that i'm using right now uh can process information and make decisions and take action based on input right that's the same thing that the tree is doing you know a, a, a network of trees right or it's it's, it's at least all that's necessary to get the kind of thing that we're talking about when it comes to the network of trees uh, or how, you know, a Venus flytrap, right? We, I don't think we think that a Venus flytrap is thinking anything or has a conscious experience, but it's still a fly lands on it and there's, there's information processing going on which creates, I don't know if you want to call it decisions, but, but there's an input-output sort of... Uh, mechanic going on there. Uh, so I'm not denying even a fetus, even like a six week old fetus, even though we think that that fetus, that, you know, there's nothing that it's like to be that fetus. You can prick that fetus with a needle and it's going to go, right? That is, um, that's a reflex. It's information processing. It's response to stimuli. Um, most living things do that, even though most living things are not uh, conscious. When I say most living things, I'm talking about like microorganisms, like single cells and stuff like that. I mean, whether an earthworm is conscious is, is debatable. But now let's, okay, so let me put that aside at, and, and now let me put on the, the panpsychist hat. Or right, now let's, let's entertain the possibility that consciousness is fundamental and it's actually a part of everything in the universe. Uh, and that's something like a tree or, or an atom or uh, a single cell. Uh, it, there it is conscious. There actually is something that it's like to be these things. Uh, on and you can, you can sort of cash out the myriology of that. You know, holes and parts and things like that. But, but um, let's say that that's true. Let's grant panpsychism here, or at least Annika Harris's version of panpsychism. Well, then we're just we're just going to have to have a different kind of conversation because when she because she will make a, a a very very important distinction between consciousness and the contents thereof there's a difference between being conscious and having thoughts right thoughts and feelings and emotions and neuroses and perception and sensory awareness and that that is those are all contents of consciousness they only come by way of neural activity, as far as we know. Um, now, maybe, maybe my computer, uh, if, either now or at some point in the future, like if you imagine a Westworld-type scenario, maybe there are other ways of, of having uh, conscious, you know, consciously perceived thoughts uh, that are not necessarily like organic via you know, uh, uh, gray matter. But... Um, uh, yeah. So, so, okay. So then, then we're just, we're just, we're just going to have a different conversation then. It's not about whether or not the fetus is conscious at this point, because everything's conscious, right? Consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is, is throughout and within all things. Okay. 
uh, then what we care about ethically in this case is not consciousness itself, but the certain contents thereof. And, and we can still say at this point that a six-week-old fetus does not, cannot have the capacity for uh, the conscious experience of pain or suffering. Those are the kinds of things you need a developed enough brain or information processing system, if not a brain, uh, to have. And so that, that would be... Um, we can have that conversation on two different planes, uh, and I, I find myself having to jump back and forth depending on my company. But um, does, does that uh, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does. I think it, it's 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 a good it's a good distinction because obviously, yeah, that we 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 as humans have uh, I call it I call it the, the sort of plate of consciousness. So there is this thing that we seem to derive all our thoughts, feelings, reflections, etc. from, and we actually find that quite often these things, our thoughts, feelings, etc., arise before we're even aware of them, and then we kind of make. Uh, kind of like post hoc reasons for, I mean, like so, so, someone like Jonathan Hyatt explains this extremely well, sort of rider and the elephant. There is this elephant that's kind of chugging along and this rider on top and the elephant moves one way other and the rider then decides, oh, I move this way for this reason, obviously. But actually when you actually go and examine it, it's probably not true. The elephant moved and the rider then made a secondary decision of why that uh -huh. happened at a later time, which is fascinating. Really, really interesting book. Um, yeah, called, yeah. Uh, uh, the, so he's got two, the happiness hypothesis and the other one now eludes me, which is annoying. Anyway, I'll, I'll link them in the description. Uh, really, really interesting. So I think that's really helpful. I think, so my kind of, my kind of, I guess, digging into this then is the, is, is the idea of um, why should we turn around and say that something isn't allowed to be online? Uh, so it could be a fetus, could be somebody who's in a coma um, or you know, brain dead um, because the kind of reflexes from the brain are no longer or haven't started to fire in the way that we would deem kind of to be necessary for pain and suffering like they still either have had or could have um a conscious awareness a, a qualia experience of those events at this stage it might just have consciousness but no qualia necessary kind of arise from that or no way to understand differentiate and, and kind of dive into that qualia so kind of w what is it about personhood then that means that we rule those things out so they, they are so, so say they are conscious they aren't having first person experiences like what is it we're trying to say that they they, they we're, we're saying basically that they need to have the ability to differentiate between this is happening now i feel like this this is hurting for them to be a person or to be, have moral consideration. Uh, yeah, and you're, you're, you're speaking specifically about um, like a, you know, a, a brain dead, somebody who's brain dead, right? Who's just on life support uh, where there's no, we're granting that there, there's no conscious experience to be had anymore. You just have a body that's being sort of kept alive. You know, what, why is it that we owe moral consideration to uh, something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be tricky. I'm just trying to use these examples to to I guess bring some more brackets around the concept yeah, yeah. of personhood or or moral consideration agent. Um, really, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm I'm I may just be be boring you with my repetitiveness, but I but I at the end of the day, I think that the fact that um, the fact that that uh, somebody who's brain dead. Uh, not only is there no longer anything that it's like to be them, right? There's no, they can't perceive anything, they can't think anything, there's no conscious experience, there's no subjectivity. There's no more subjectivity in them than there is, you know, this thing. Uh, then, then, then why, why would we treat them any differently than we would this thing? Now, there are reasons why we would treat them differently, right? Because they once were 
conscious, right? And maybe they had wishes for, you know, and this is why actually we do, you know, my, my, my father just finally, I've been begging him to do this forever because he treats his body like shit uh, and he's, he could die any day now. But, but my father finally wrote his last will and testament, finally. And, uh, and he, he's, he has DNR, you know, do not resuscitate, right? So if, he's, if his brain stops working, like he's like, please, I, you know, don't, don't just keep my body alive. So I'm not, you know, even when it comes to, I, I'm more, when I use the example of, you know, an end of life, uh, no longer conscious, brain dead, no longer has the potential to become conscious again, uh, human being. Uh, I'm, I'm almost speaking descriptively, not normatively. I think we all kind of have this intuition that we don't just want our bodies kept alive until they just, you know, deteriorate on their own for no reason. I mean, we want, when we're ready to go, we want to go, you know, especially what we value is the potential future experiences. Um, so, uh, I, you know, that, that, that's why I put that in the same category as, as, uh, well, it's not exactly the same category, but that's why I put it in the category, uh, uh, the same category as a fetus, because, uh, in both cases, there's nothing, um, uh, well, yeah, in, in both cases, there's, there's just no conscious experience to be had. And then you can ask the question, uh, you know, well, uh, uh, you, you can ask all kinds of questions. I mean, um, you know, if you can abort a fetus. Well, no, those questions have more to do with somebody in a coma who's... Sorry, I'm getting confused. Yeah, there are philosophical objections to this, but they have more to do with somebody who's brain dead, not really brain dead, but, but in a coma with the potential to awaken. You know, well, if you can uh, kill a fetus, why can't you kill... Uh, somebody who's in a temporary coma who might awaken. They won't feel it. They won't know you're killing them. And there are answers to those questions. But right now, we're um, comparing something that uh, uh, is uh, at present not conscious. And if you end their life, uh, you're not forfeiting anything that they had an expectation to experience previously. Got you. Yeah, so it's almost like um, there's a contract that uh, we have with ourselves. And if that contract is... Uh, written but 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 on a it's, it's almost in kind of draft form but it hasn't yet been signed then it is uh theoretically okay to kind of end that that sort of contract before it becomes fully signed so you the, it, for that i'm kind of talking about a fetus in that way so there is something that uh, has non-actualized qualia let's call it so they haven't yet had a direct first person experience but they are um yeah potentially going yeah, to have that so 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 that's 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 what we're saying basically. I mean, I, I have absolutely no issue with saying that somebody who's brain dead, who's never going to have anything, we need to turn the block off at some point. Like, yeah, I I I get that. For me, and I'm I, I kind of not necessarily going to say why I'm on this on the spectrum, but I just find it interesting that the kind of moral consideration isn't applied to something with non-actualized qualia. I find that, and I, it could just be because I haven't worked it through enough in, in, in my logic, but something that could have. Uh, kind of uh, pleasure pain life experience um which is already in in the process of gaining that and signing that contract would be ended um i i, I actually kind of do agree quite a lot with um uh antinatalism um but i kind of think that once you start the journey off it, it becomes a different conversation um mm. but actually the, the concept of antinatalism i kind of actually do do kind of think and i want to have some conversations on that but the the, the fact that something has 
almost it's, it's almost like antinatalism is there is no contract to start with and we're saying abortion there is a contract in draft but it's not yet been signed I don't know if that's a good analogy. I keep using it, but I'm going to keep going with it. But um, I kind of feel like if, if it's in draft, we're kind of going, oh, actually, let's just get rid of that and pretend it's, it, it was never going to be, it was never going to happen. Whereas if we just left things as they were, potentially could happen. Now I'm fully aware that there are loads of social and economic and et cetera reasons why this conversation is deeper than, than this that I'm speaking about right now. Um, but I just yeah, find yeah. that I, I, I guess I still don't understand, and this could just be me not understanding and being silly, uh, why we wouldn't have a moral consideration to something that could sign a contract. Okay, so so um, I, th- I'm I'm so sorry for this. I, I could I could talk with you for hours, Sam. I, I really really could. This is so fun for me. I have to go in like ten minutes. Um, if that's all oh, right. Oh, of course, yeah. Sorry, um, I completely lost track of time. Oh, right. no worries, no worries. Um, but but you're what you're saying here is is totally legitimate and it's a huge part of this conversation even among people who are really philosophically literate and and uh you know know the material and stuff so so it's you know um there's there's an argument there's a pro-life argument called the future like ours argument right and it's you know so okay so so what if the fetus isn't conscious now it will be right so you're 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 foreclosing on all this future potential of experience, right? I mean, what, so what, how, is that, how is that a good thing? Um, and so my question, the question that I would pose in response to this, and I, I don't have an answer, the, the, um, uh, and there may in fact be a satisfying answer, I just haven't heard one that doesn't strike my ear as arbitrary. But the question is, okay, if it's wrong to prevent future conscious experience, right? then what is the morally relevant, non-arbitrary difference between an abortion at six weeks and me running into someone's bedroom when they're about to climax during sex and stopping them from, make, from conceiving a baby in the first place, right? In both cases, the actual empirical facts are the same. You had a future where there, were, there, there was a future of conscious experience uh, and it was prevented. Right? Why does the fetus having been conceived or not make a morally relevant difference? Uh, uh, to me, it actually seems arbitrary. And if you don't think it's wrong to wear a condom, uh, then I don't, I, I don't see the logic of thinking it's wrong to have an abortion. Um, and so I don't, I just, I just I'll, I'll pose that question as something to think about. There may be uh, a really good answer to that question that I personally haven't heard, and that would be really interesting. Um, but to me, those, that distinction seems uh, like an arbitrary one uh, in terms of the future potential concern. So. We uh, we got down a really weird track with 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 morality, but I've really enjoyed it. I think it's um, I think I, for some reason. So this is just my gut. For some reason, my gut wants to turn around and say, uh, in in response to your question, and it's not a good answer. So just just break yourself. <laughs> for that. Um, my sort of gut wants to say, um, basically, kind of when when something begins to self replicate, that's and and it's from two different entities. That's that's a different thing than uh somebody essentially about to climax and you stopping that i think i, well, I just, certainly I, it's certainly a different thing what what the the answer would have to be how it's a it's a um th- those two things are certainly different but but you the the answer has to be one that shows that they're different in a morally relevant sense um and and that's gonna depend on how you view morality 
right? Yeah. It depends on what, what questions morality is supposed to answer. Uh, and different people have different intuitions about that. And that's why these conversations are always ongoing. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's helpful. I think that's a, it's a good distinction. And I, I don't have an answer. I just think it's, um, I just don't know if there is, I mean, I just don't know if there is an answer. I think these sorts of things, you know, I, I, I try and stay, stay clear in my kind of a podcast on the, com- uh, the conversation around abortion. Weirdly, I find the conversation of veganism one I can find more tenable and abortion one <laughs> I, I just try not to think about, to be completely honest with you, but maybe it is one to really be able to, um, I guess, um, bite one's teeth down on some really kind of uh, meaty subjects and um, and actually begin to try and understand why, yeah, why things are different with veganism and com- in, in comparison to abortion, as you mentioned right right at the start. And I'm aware that I said bite down on meaty subjects. And, yeah, <laughs> I, hope, I hope everybody I hope everybody appreciate that as much as I did. Um, anyway, anyway, that was great, um, <laughs> Scott. I will have links to you in in the show notes. People can reach out to you on um, email or via Twitter, um, and obviously links to your YouTube channel as well. Um, mate, as always, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you as always for coming on the show. You too, brother. Could have gone for another few hours, and I, I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.